Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Tonight we're going to pick up in our study through the book of Leviticus. Uh, We need to finish off chapter 7 and with it the sacrificial system. And then as we move into 8, we'll start to talk about the consecration of the priesthood. But for now, let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. This is the law of the guilt offering. Now, we're actually returning. This is our second loop through the sacrifices. Leviticus lays out five sacrifices that would have made up the common worship practices of the common Israelites. There are other sacrifices specifically for specific holy days, for specific happenings like the consecration of priests that we'll cover tonight. But for the most part, there's these five sacrifices that make up Israel's worship. When we look at the opening of Leviticus, it walks through five and then it starts over again and walks through them again. And the reason it goes through it the second time is not so much to talk about the sacrifice as what happens before and after the sacrifice. And so in chapters 6 and 7, we get some of the reasons why particular sacrifices would need to be brought. In chapter 7 especially, we get what happens next. In other words, um, how the food portion of the sacrifice is distributed. Whereas the first five chapters are speaking primarily to the common Israelite so that they know what to expect in a sacrifice. Second half of chapter 6 and chapter 7 focus on the priests, the added duties that are, uh, are focused on them. Now, the whole book is given to all of Israel, and we'll see why that makes sense in just a minute, but the first offering that's brought up here is the guilt offering. You may remember there are two sin offerings that are presented by Israel. The guilt offering is one of them. Let's look at what it says here. It continues in verse 1, it is most holy. In the place where they shall kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood will be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all of its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the loins, the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Now, there's nothing new in those verses that we didn't learn just a chapter ago as these things were addressed. As we saw last time, uh, the atoning of sin requires a blood sacrifice, the death of an innocent animal. As we saw last time, um, the blood is thrown against the side of the altar as a representation of the whole tabernacle. Remember, the whole problem of the book of Leviticus is how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And so this is part of that process. All of the fat, as the best portions of the animal, belongs to God. But it's in verse uh, verse 6 that it starts to add new information for us. We see this here. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It's most holy. So all of the meat of the guilt offering is available or made available to the priests. 
And as we continue to read in this chapter, you'll see that some portions are for the priest making the offering, and others are shared broadly throughout the whole priesthood. And we'll recognize here tonight that there's two things going on simultaneously. One has to do with the symbolism of the sacrifice. In fact, if we get far enough tonight, we'll see Moses getting upset with the priests for not eating their portion and burning it on the altar instead. The reason is because in the eating of the sacrifice, there's a representation of the fact that the sacrifice was accepted. Okay? And so that's one reason why the priests were to eat of these sacrifices. It's part of the expression of the symbolism that's going on. But the second reason is because the priests aren't paid. Okay? This isn't a job that you can sign up for uh, or, or go to school for. Remember, this is a tribe known as the Levites, one of Jacob's 12 sons that have been assigned perpetually as the priesthood. Later on, when we get to the book of Joshua, we'll discover they're not even given a territory of land, but scattered throughout the rest of the land, uh, and their income is provided by the rest of the Israeli uh, tribes. The primary way they do this is through Israel's worship. And so we see here that the meat from some of the sacrifices, in some places, like the burnt offering, the whole animal is burned because it's intentionally reflecting consecration, dedication, all of it is given to God because all of our life belongs to God. But with other offerings, a portion is preserved for the priests to take care of their own needs. Now this is a principle in the Old Testament that we see consistently, but it's one we find into the New Testament. In fact, as we're going to talk about the priests tonight pretty extensively, we need to learn how to view them through three different windows. First, we have to recognize that in one sense, Jesus is the full fulfillment of the priesthood. Read Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. Read it straight through and it will help you to understand these things. In fact, the mediatorial portion of what the priests do, as they go into the holy place, into the presence of God where we cannot go, where they offer sacrifices on our behalf because we cannot offer them, All of that is completely fulfilled. There is no correlation between that and my role as a pastor or anyone who would take the title as priest today. In fact, the New Testament is adamant that there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of what Jesus has done so fully and completely, we no longer have to go through some sort of middleman to get to God. But that's part of what the priesthood did, okay? So not only when we look at the priesthood do we come to an understanding of Jesus, but we also come to an understanding of God's people in general. We learned in the book of Exodus not only that God was going to give Israel a priesthood, but in a sense they would also be a priesthood. That God was going to make all of Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The recognition that God is making in using that label is in the same way that the priests operate on behalf of the nation, so also the nation of Israel was to operate on behalf of the rest of humanity. And so this idea is brought forward in the New Testament, and if you read uh, Peter's epistle, 1 Peter, that is, he'll point out that we as the church are now a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So as we'll see tonight, there's things that we can learn about what it looks like to follow Jesus from the book of Leviticus, from the priesthood. 
But there is one other layer to look at this. Not only should we look at Jesus as the final and full fulfillment of this, not only should we look at ourselves as a kingdom of priests, but obviously here the priests are also representing uh, or representative of religious leaders. And so when we get to the New Testament, although we no longer need a mediator, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 tells us that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. As I said, there are differences. That's why in our church, we don't take the title of priest. In fact, we don't see that title being used by the early church to refer to their leadership. But there are leadership principles that we find applying to the priests that we also find applying to pastors and elders in the local churches in the New Testament. One of them is the fact that it is absolutely appropriate for them to be financially supported by their ministry. This is something Jesus himself said. Once when he sent out his 12 disciples to go before him into other towns, he said, do not take with you any extra money because a laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul picks up on that and says that pastors, as the Lord, Jesus, commanded, should be supported by the ministry. In fact, he quotes the Pentateuch as well. This from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we find a law that says, do not muzzle an ox when he's treading the grain. Now, in Deuteronomy, that law is just what it sounds like. It's an animal rights law. The recognition is if you've got an ox and he's working out in your grain field, don't muzzle his mouth closed so that he can't eat while he works. He's doing the labor. He deserves the reward of his own labors. Paul takes that principle and says, if it applies to animals, how much more does it apply to those who take the time to minister to us? In the book of Galatians, he says that it is completely appropriate that those who share spiritual goods should also receive a part of the physical goods of those who they minister to. That's what it says, I believe, in chapter 6. And so it's repeated constantly throughout the New Testament that one of the reasons that we should give is so that we can support ministers, so that they can do the work of the ministry of prayer and of teaching the word. Now, it's worth pointing out that Paul actually, who maintains that principle, still removes himself from partaking of it. He tells the church in Corinth that he's intentionally not taken advantage of that right because not taking a paycheck says something. It says, I would do this work whether I have to work a second job or not. It would say, I'm not in this for the money, I'm in this for your sake. And he was working in Corinth where there were a lot of financially supported teachers of all sorts of philosophies and as you can imagine, a good deal of them that were just making money and weren't worth a cent. And so because of that, he goes, you know what? The money's not important. In fact, it's important you don't pay me so you get the message, I'm here from the true God and I'm here because I love you, okay? And so it's appropriate, but even in that time, he maintains in the letter of 1 Corinthians that it's right. And not just for the support of the pastor, but also a pastor's family. He asks this question, speaking to the church. He says, isn't it appropriate for me, like Peter and the other apostles, to bring along a wife? It's not she can't come to the party, right? It's afford to bring her as he travels from church to church, right? But the Bible does maintain that this is an issue uh, not of wealth. 
not of getting rich, but of taking care of needs, of making sure that substance is taken care of. Okay, and so there's no justification here um, for Learjets and $3,000 suits or anything like that. Just a simple principle that it's on your behalf that many leaders in the church labor, and so it's appropriate that you help them to do so financially. And so we see that is taken care of for the priest. They, for the guilt offering, as we see here, that's to be provided for their livelihood. Now, it mentions here that it has to be eaten in a holy place and that it's most holy. That means it doesn't leave the tabernacle, okay? So they can't take this particular offering home to their families. But while they're on the job, on their lunch break, this is what they eat, okay? Um, Verse 7, the guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. As I mentioned, the burnt offering, all of the meat is offered on the altar, but we see here that it was skinned beforehand, and that skin, for the sake of the priest and his family, goes to the priest. Verse 9, every grain offering baked in the oven and all that's prepared on a pan or a griddle shall be to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. So notice once again a division. Some of the sacrifices go to the priest on duty. Others are shared across the priesthood. Now, one of the ways that I think we should think about this tonight is not merely that God has provided for the priesthood, but he's also clarifying exactly what that looks like so that it can't be easily taken advantage of. There's a built-in accountability to this. If it's the burnt offering and you see him cutting off a nice leg of lamb, you know that that's out of line, right? The skin is his, but this is to be maintained. We'll see later that particular offerings, particular parts of the meat are for the priests, okay? And so it's, it's intentionally laying out not just a provision for the priesthood, but also an accountability. Because I think we all recognize that the priesthood is a position of power, right? And especially in this day where it's mediatorial, there is this reality where they are representing God to you and you are representing God to them. In a nation that takes these things seriously as they should, a nation that knows that God is alive, and a nation that knows that they need a priesthood, can you imagine that there was the possibility of bent and corrupt priests? We don't have to ask because we know about some of them. Take Eli's sons who were actually taking sexual advantage of women who were coming to the temple, as well as taking the best portions of meat out of the pot. The Bible is fully aware, like all other authority structures, that power can be abused. But right here, it lays out for everybody to see policy out in the open so that the priests can be held accountable. Verse 11, and this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Remember, the peace offering is the culmination of Israel's worship. This is the one that wasn't just eaten by the priests or burned entirely on the altar, but shared between the offerer and any of the offerer's guests. It represented full experiential fellowship with God. You see, the Bible doesn't envision a relationship with God uh, like a jackpot, like a, uh, what am I thinking of? I want to say a casino, that's not right. A one-armed bandit, like a slot machine, right? Where you just have to pay your dues and pull the lever and sometimes you get blessed. It's not mechanical. 
The goal is not just heaven. It's not just forgiveness. It's forgiveness so that you can, as intended, enjoy a relationship, an intimate and close relationship with God. I know the Old Testament can often feel like God is distant because of this whole holiness thing. But listen to his heart as he talks through the Old Testament. Listen to the metaphors he chooses to compare himself in his relationship with his people. He says, you are my children, I am your father. He says, you are my bride, I am your husband. He says, even when you're a faithful adulteress, I care for you. And so the desire is one of relationship. The peace offering represented this. And so what happens after its sacrifice? Verse 12. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with the thanksgiving sacrificed, unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. So the first thing we see is he can desire to offer a peace offering as an act of thanksgiving. Can you imagine the circumstances here? There's been some sort of dire need. There's been some form of prayer request. You know, things are getting a little bit tight. The cupboard's getting a little bit bare. You've been praying to God that he would provide, and he does. Okay, a Thanksgiving offering comes and says, out of my gratitude, I want to share a feast with you, God, and I want to enjoy the relationship. Okay, now, I have found that unlike our friendship with people where you can have fair weather friends, right, who are only around when seasons are good, many of us struggle on a different level with God and we have a foul weather friendship with God. We come when things are drastic, we get what we need and we're gone. But we see here the appropriate reaction to answered prayer is to enter in deeper into a relationship with God. And so that's when uh, it was appropriate to offer the peace offering as an offering of thanksgiving. And so we see here that with that was supposed to be certain types of baked goods. Remember, those would not just be given to the priest, but also shared. It makes for a better feast. Uh, Verse 13, with the sacrifice of his peace offering for Thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. Now, I love that because leavened bread tastes better. It just does, okay? Because this is not the grain offering, where no leaven is allowed, but a peace offering, which once again is a feast, they're allowed to bring leavened bread. As we already saw, there's some unleavened as well, but these are the ones that they're going to consume. Okay, they're more enjoyable. They're not limited to just matzah or unleavened bread. And so we see here uh, verse 14, and he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood to the peace offering. And so they share it with the priest. Verse 15. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering, now let's pause. Before we move on to a different one, did you catch that last sentence? He says, by the way, the entire feast needs to be done uh, today. Okay. It sounds like the fairy godmother. At midnight... It just turns into uncleanness, right? We have to ask ourselves why this is the case. Now, could this be hygienic? We'll see that some of the feasts you were allowed to eat the next day, but never the third day, okay? In a pre-refrigeration world and a fresh cut of meat, that makes perfect sense. I don't think this is merely hygienic. It speaks instead of uncleanness, okay? Now, could uh, could it be the fact that in the broad category of holy and unclean and pure and profane, uh, that there's something going on in the symbolism here. Absolutely. But there is other, one other thing that I think is worth mentioning. 
Remember here, they're going to kill an entire animal. Is that a lot of meat? Right? If, if you were to order an entire slaughtered cow, you're going to put it in your f- freezer and it's going to feed your family all winter. Okay? One of the things I think this implication, or one of the things this implies, is that they have to bring enough guests to eat it. Right? This is supposed to be something that is hospitable and invitational. If you're killing an entire cow, you've got to add up the guest list. You've got to make sure there's enough people to eat it. I think there is a recognition here of sharing and generosity, not merely in the sense of for the poor. When we get to the tithe, we'll see that's part of it. But also in the sense of fellowship. This is why John, in 1 John, opens his letter and he says that because of the gospel, we have fellowship with one another and with God the Father. He puts them together. He doesn't see a relationship with God in modern individualistic terms, but in corporate terms. And so there's a fellowship here and a fellowship here, and they go together vertically and horizontally. And so it's striking to me that there's this... um, expiration date built in that would basically imply if you want to get your use out of this sacrifice you should invite more people okay that seems appropriate to me but nonetheless that's the laws it's given and then it moves on to a different reason to bring this offering and so it says here verse 16 if the sacrifice of the offering is a vow offering or a free will offering Okay, so we get two different categories here. Let's deal with the easy one first, a free will offering. Meaning if you just want to have a feast with the Lord, anytime you can come and bring a peace offering. Okay, you've got to make sure that you've dealt with your sin with the sin and guilt offering. You've got to start with a burnt offering and possibly a grain offering. But if you desire to come and celebrate with God and enjoy his fellowship, the door is always open. Okay. But the other one says that it's the feast of a vow, okay? Now, we don't really make vows anymore because we're not really romantic. uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton says there's really only two romantic gestures left in the modern world, marriage and the sending of a letter because both are irrevocable, okay? Once it's in the mailbox, it's gone. Um... But at this time, a vow was a way to, um, to make a promise to the Lord. And I always like to use an acronym just because I really think it's really easy to misunderstand this. So think of V-O-W. First off, a vow is voluntary. This is not a law. It's not a rule. It's not a have to. It's not a prerequisite or a requirement. It's something that you desire to do. All vows are voluntary, Okay. Second, though, oh, it's an obligation. Once you make it, you've made it, and you've committed yourself to fulfill it. To the degree that the author of Ecclesiastes says, it would be better never to make a vow than to make it and break it. He says, remember, God is in heaven, and we're only on earth, so keep your words few. Don't make promises to God you're not going to keep. Okay? So it's an obligation. And then lastly, it's an act of worship. Okay, why do you bring a vow? just in response to who God is, in response to what he's done in your life. And so that's a vow. It's a voluntary action that obligates you as an expression of worship. Take, for example, the Nazarite vow. This is a very particular vow. The Nazarite vow uh, was a particular vow basically of consecration. 
It was like if you wanted to kick up your relationship with God, and it involved all sorts of restrictions. No more wine or even grapes. You have to stay away from dead bodies. You have to stop cutting your hair. But it's just a time of special consecration to devote yourself to the Lord. No doubt it would be filled with um, extra times of prayer and fasting and these types of things. When you fulfill a vow, it says here that it's appropriate to bring a peace offering. Okay. I think this is helpful because it reminds us that the goal of our relationship, even if we indebt ourselves to God voluntarily in a vow, is fellowship. Okay. Fasting is this way. Fasting is not some sort of spiritual currency where if you bank up enough hours, you get to go to the heavenly reward store and God, that's not how it works. Fasting is an expression that says this, right now, my relationship with you is more important than food. Which, side note, is a striking statement because you need food to survive, right? And so by avoiding food, you're saying, my relationship with you, my hearing your voice, my drawing closer to you, my dependence on you, is greater than my dependence on food, which I need to stay alive, right? But when you finish, there should be a feast. Now, practical side note, be careful there. You should ease your way out of a fast so you don't hurt yourself, really, seriously. But the point is here that if we get in some sort of uh, place where we've put God in our pocket, where we've obligated God, then we've misunderstood the whole point. And so vows were to culminate in a fellowship offering, in a peace offering, in a feast with God, in enjoying the relationship. If you don't do this, you end up like the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the man who had two sons, right? Who stays at home, never does anything wrong, is devoted to his father, and then when he finds out his brother has come home and there's a big feast for him, he goes, I've slaved for you some ten years and you've never killed the fatted calf for me? What does the father answer? Son, all I have is yours. At any day, you could have said, hey, dad, let's enjoy a feast tonight. And he would have been on board. But we have to watch out for that thing that assuming God is the one keeping our relationship distant when almost always it's us. And so this peace offering is supposed to serve that purpose. So he continues here. We have a free will offering. We have a vow offering. And then they're both to be handled in the same way. It says, verse 16, if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers the sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. Now, why is that different than the Thanksgiving offering? I don't know. One, only one day. This one could be two. Uh, verse 17, but what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with, with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Verse 19, flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat the flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. What is this saying? It says that the guest list needs to require people who are in good standing ceremonially. Okay? I know we haven't gotten to the clean or the unclean laws here, but if you're in a phase of uncleanness, you can't come and partake of this feast. That's what's being said here. 
It continues on as well, and it says, verse 21, if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eat some of the flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, that person shall be cut off from his people. Most of the time that phrase there, cut off, just means excluded. Okay? They're to be isolated. Sometimes it clearly means more than that, maybe even premature death or even capital punishment. But in circumstances like this where it's dealing specifically with issues of clean and unclean, the idea is exclusion. Verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, You shall eat no fat of the ox or the sheep or the goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of the one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. Okay, so if you're you're, uh, uh, some sort of hippie, if you're homeopathic, if the animal dies on its own and you find it, you can put that fat to use, but you still, can't use, use, uh, you still can't eat it. Verse 25, for every person who eats the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Remember, the fat belongs to the Lord. Verse 26, moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether fowl or animal or any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any of the blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And so there were these two parts of all animals that the Israelites were not allowed to eat, the fat and the blood. The fat as a representation of the best portion and the blood as a representation of life itself. Okay. Now it's worth mentioning as well that in this day and age, the day and age of Israel in the wilderness, all the way through their history, much of that land believed things about blood magical things about blood, that by drinking blood uh, it could empower you or, um, or that you could somehow manipulate the gods and things. And so there's also a distinction being set here that, that they are not to do like their pagan neighbors do. But the emphasis that's maintained throughout the Old Testament is that blood is such a perfect picture of life itself, right? Empty the blood from an animal, you take its life. Uh, that they're supposed to have this reverence and this recognition of this. Now, I, I think it's worth pointing out that that's despite the fact that they're constantly killing animals in the tabernacle. But you have to hold those two ideas together. This was never something that was to become lighthearted or mechanical uh, or not a big deal. Every animal that died, they should feel the weight of. They should feel the cost financially of it. They should feel the reality of the fact that it's an innocent animal dying in their place. Remember that for some of these sacrifices, they would lay their hand on the head of the animal, the offerer, not the priest, confess their sins aloud, and then slit its throat. Do you feel the correlation between those two things? Innocent on behalf of the guilty. And so that principle spreads out into everything they do. Verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offering. He shall bring the fat with the beast, that the, uh, sorry, the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. So now we get to the food distribution for the peace offering. And what we see here is that the breast is ceremoniously waved before the Lord, but then eaten by the priests, generally. It continues here, and it says in verse 31, The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offering. 
Now, notice the distinction between those two things. They both get eaten by the priests, but there's two differences. One, this right, uh, this right thigh, that goes to the sacrificing priest. It's his portion. The wave offering, the right breast, goes to the priesthood, generally, to be shared. But the other thing that's different is the wave offering is actually offered to the Lord and then graciously eaten by the priests. Okay? And so built into this is a reminder of the fact that it's not merely the people paying the priest's bills, if you will. God just graciously gives this portion to the priests. You see, we're going to learn later that the Leviticus don't have an inheritance in the land because God is their inheritance. Okay? Their relationship with God was to be one that was so close that they were truly aware of God's goodness in their life. And maybe this is only uh, pertinent for me, but here's something I've learned as a pastor who actually gets a paycheck, like a traditional paycheck for what I do. I have to constantly remind myself that that is God's provision. Okay? Because if I get in the trap of thinking that it comes from the church, then that can put me in place of being manipulated. Now, honestly, I've never had anyone in our church or any other church I've been involved with threaten some sort of thing if I didn't listen to them financially. I've never encountered that. But it's important that I recognize it's not merely the church that pays my bills, even though it's an act of love and gratitude that the church does so. It's also God's provision. And if God wanted to take care of me by just dropping sacks of undisclosed money on my porch, that would be fine and I wouldn't take a check anymore, right? It's really not that different and this is where it overlaps for you. It's also not that different for you. I know you earn your paycheck, but don't ever forget that you earn it with the opportunities and the gifts and even the time in history that God has given you. There's a sizable portion of your income that was determined not by you and how hard you've worked, but by God and the things that he's given you. So we always need to remember that it's not, this is my money, I'll share some with God. God has provided for you, and whatever happens next happens from that foundation. Okay? So verse 33, whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for portion for the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed I've taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offering and have given them to Aaron the priest to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It's a perpetual due throughout their generations. Okay, so the last thing it lays out here is that this should be business as usual. Verse 37, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so now the whole sacrificial system is laid on the table. Remember where the book of Leviticus ends. It ends with a tabernacle. Sorry, where it begins. Exodus ends with the tabernacle being assembled, consecrated, and inhabited. Right? The glory of the Lord descends on it, but now there's a problem. God's there, but nobody can go in because God's there. Not even Moses. And so the first thing that's laid out in Leviticus to answer that is the need for a sacrificial system. 
But that's not enough on its own. We also need a priesthood. Okay? Now, the book's been talking about priests so far, but they haven't actually been installed yet. And that's what we come to in chapter 8, is the installation of the priesthood. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, if this is your first time joining us tonight, and you weren't with us in Exodus, all of that is new information. But you find in the late chapters of Exodus, specifically for the priesthood, I believe it's Exodus chapter 28, all of the clothing has already been made. The oil they need for anointing has already been made. Uh, they know what sacrifices are going to go into the ritual we're about to read. And so they gather all of the ingredients okay, at the tabernacle and all of the people. This is not some private installation behind closed doors. This is a public event. Verse 5. Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and he washed them with water. Now we're going to see a lot of steps in the process. I probably won't comment on all of them, but I want you to notice how many steps there are. What's the goal here? That the priests can actually serve and take care of the sacrifices so that Israel as a nation can have access to God. They've already been chosen right? The Levites, Aaron and his sons in perpetuity. We even saw that tonight. But that doesn't qualify them to get started. What's the first thing they do? They wash them in water, okay? And then it continues. Uh, First thing is wash, and then verse 7, he put a coat on them and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him binding it to him with the band. He placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded. Step one, wash. Step two, clothe. Okay? And do you notice who's doing the clothing here? It's not the priest in a locker room. It's Moses doing this, right? Now, that's not perpetual. But the point is, they're not even holy enough to handle the holy garments. They can't dress themselves. Right now, Moses is the only qualified person, and we're going to watch as he operates as the only operating priest to consecrate the priesthood, okay? And so they've been washed, and second, they've been clothed. Remember that this clothing is intentionally symbolic. When they wear it, they're, they're Aaron, but not merely Aaron. Right Now it's Aaron the high priest. It's Aaron the representative of Israel who bears the people of Israel along his heart and on his shoulders and wears a plaque that says holy to the Lord on his turban. Right, he, He's in uniform now and the uniform means something. Washed, clothed, next we see that he's anointed. Verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled it some of the, on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Do you see the connection between Aaron and the tabernacle? If you remember back in chapter 28, we saw that the fabrics of Aaron's clothing coincide with the tabernacle itself. They go together. And we see the same thing here. So he takes oil and he consecrates. He sets aside, he appoints as being unto the Lord all of the tabernacle and Aaron the high priest as well. Okay? 
So first, he has to be physically cleansed. Then he has to be clothed. Now he has to be anointed. Now, what is anointing? The word it uses here is consecrating, and that's a pretty good place to get us started. It means that, it's, that Aaron is now holy, right? He's gone from normal Aaron to holy Aaron. That's the purpose of the oil. It's worth pointing out that later in Israel's history, the kings are also anointed. Both David and Saul are anointed by Samuel, the prophet, with oil just like this. And interestingly enough, when that happens, they both receive in a special way the Holy Spirit, which is why in the New Testament we often talk about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But the primary reason we do that is there is another anointed one in Scripture, The priests were anointed, the kings were anointed, and the Messiah that Israel was awaiting, that word just means anointed one, okay, the one who is anointed. And so if you read in the prophet Isaiah, it speaks of the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Messiah speaking aloud through the prophet Isaiah. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's such a big deal when we get to the New Testament and Jesus is being baptized, cleansed. And then the spirit descends like a dove and remains on him. Okay? The symbolism is all overlapping. It's all the same. But anointed means to be consecrated, to become holy, set apart for a particular task. Whether it's king of Israel, high priest, or Messiah. Uh, so he anoints Aaron, verse 13, Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering. Notice this, the first sacrifice that has to be brought is a sin offering on behalf of Aaron and the priests. They can't just start, even though they've been washed, even though they're wearing the garments, you know, and are, uh, you know, dressed beyond their personality, even though they've been consecrated, they still need to start with dealing with their own sins. This is the one, of the one of the contrasts that the author of Hebrews makes between this priesthood and Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to start by offering a sacrifice for himself. He already is pure. The washing here that's merely physical isn't even necessary for Jesus. Do you remember what John says to Jesus when he comes to be baptized? John's baptizing people left and right, and here comes Jesus, and John goes, whoa, hold on. If anything, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, permit it to fulfill all righteousness, right? Because it's part of fulfilling this reality of the priesthood, and it's part of identifying with us, which, by the way, is why we're baptized. Baptism is a recognition of our identification with Jesus, that when he died, we died. Read Romans chapter 6. Okay, and so to identify with us, to identify with the priesthood, he goes through these steps, but he doesn't need to be washed. He's already clean. Um, So there's a bull offered for their sin. Notice what happens in verse 14. They brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he, who, most likely Moses, Moses killed it. Remember, he's operating as the priest here. And Moses took the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. He took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar, but the bull and its skin and its flesh and dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded. It's just a business as usual sin offering being offered for the priesthood. And so Moses goes through all the steps on their behalf. Verse 18, 
Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid his hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the side of the altar. Now this is a burnt offering, so what's the purpose of a burnt offering again? Remember, it's dedication. It's full and total consecration. In the same way that the animal is fully consumed on the altar, so also we desire to offer the, our whole selves. Okay? So now the sin issue has been dealt with, and now they offer themselves fully through this ram. Verse 20, he cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces of the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord had commanded. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. Okay, this one is unique to this reality of ordaining priests. It's done more than once because Israel's priesthood stops and starts, but when it starts again, it starts including this sacrifice, this specific one, the one of ordination. Uh, And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. So at first, it looks like another sacrifice. They lay their hands on it, they sacrifice it, it's put on the altar, and then also blood is put on the right side, on the ear, on the thumb, and on the big toe. Okay. So once again, it's just another gateway of this process of becoming a priest. Right? And this one involves blood being applied directly to their body, all on their right side, which would be the side of honor, the favored side. Sorry, lefties. I have three left-handed children, I understand. Um, but why, why the head, the hand, and the toe? Most likely, and this is just my opinion, I know I'm kind of a spoil sport, I, I ruin things. Most likely, it's just a head-to-foot metaphor. Right? Your hand is halfway down your body, so from head to toe. It's a full-body consecration that doesn't look like that horrible scene in the movie Carrie. Right? It's not a bucket of blood. It's just these three spots as representative of the whole. Right? Some would like to point out, though, that maybe, maybe these particular places are significant. Obviously, your hands would be a great representation of everything you do, your actions, your feet of the places you go. In fact, we already know there's significance in their feet because there's one thing missing from their uniform, and that's shoes. Just like Moses took off his sandals in front of the burning bush at the beginning of Exodus, the priests operate in the tabernacle without shoes on because they're on holy ground. Okay? So the feet may represent where you go, and then the ear either represents the head as being you know, the rational center of your being, or what you hear. If you want to hear in it that little hymn that you may have heard in Sunday school growing up, be careful little ears what you hear, that's fine. That's just not a very constant metaphorical significance in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, this is, this is where this ordination takes place, right? Now they're head to toe, set aside for the Lord. Verse 24, he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and their right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of the fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his son and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Now, I just want you to notice here that there's a slow escalation of their involvement, okay? And so, 
for the most part, it's just been Moses doing this. Now they offer a wave offering before the Lord. They're starting to participate. But we're not done yet. Verse uh, 28, Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Now pause. Earlier I made the argument that one of the things, uh, one of the reasons why the meat is to be eaten is because it's symbolic. This is the primary reason why I believe this is the case, okay? Moses doesn't just get one day's wage because he filled in today, right? There's some significance to the fact that this portion is to be eaten by Moses. It represents the acceptableness of the sacrifice, okay? They stand in the place of God as partaker, And so Moses does that on behalf of the priests. Verse 30, Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on the sons and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. And so we have another level of consecration. This one, a little bit of blood from the ordination sacrifice mingled with oil and two at once are sprinkled on them and their clothing, which is new, right? Verse 31, and Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it. And the bread that's in the basket of ordination offering as I commanded saying Aaron and his sons shall eat it. Do you see what the final phase here of the ordination is? It's a peace offering, but it's limited just to the priesthood, right? So this final sacrifice there to eat together alone in front of all of Israel who's just sitting and watching if you had forgotten. But see the... Um, trajectory here, sin offering, burn offering, ordination, because that's part of it, but where does it end? Like all the other Israel worship does in the peace offering, in fellowship. You see, their priesthood isn't just something they do on behalf of others, it's something that they should enjoy. Can you understand the privilege here of living and working and eating in the tabernacle? Remember what David says in the Psalms? David, who's not a Levite and who isn't allowed in, better is one day in your courts, Lord, than thousands elsewhere. For I would rather live in the tent of the Lord than dwell in the rich mansions of the wicked, right? I'd rather be a doorkeeper. Just let me greet people as they come into the tabernacle. That's David's aspiration. He understands the value that the priests have here. And so there to eat of it, verse 32, and what remains of the flesh and the bread you should burn up with fire, don't share it. Verse 33, you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day of your ordination is completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. If it wasn't enough that they've gone through all of these processes, now there's a holding period for a week. Now, most likely, they're going to continue to offer sacrifices. Some people would say what we just went through, they go through every day again. I don't think that's very likely. At the very least, though, the morning and evening sacrifices that are required, they start offering now, but the tabernacle's not yet open for business. They are quarantined, wholly quarantined for a week's time. Now, just as a side note here, because remember, as I told you, these things are a window into who Jesus was, They're a window into who we all are as Christians, and then sometimes they're a good window into the leaders that God has given the church. All I want to point out to you tonight with this section, this seven days, is that they just have to wait. Okay? They're probably chomping at the bit. I'll just remind you that they started building the tabernacle months ago. 
maybe as much as a year ago before they're finally rolling this out. They've known that this was their job and their position. They've gone through all of this, and now they just have to sit and wait for seven days. There's a principle here. I'd like to tell you it wasn't the case. But Jesus, he's baptized. The dove descends. What does he do? 40 days in the wilderness. What do you call that outside of preparation? It's clearly preparation, but it's also not very fun. And it's not just Jesus. What about the disciples? He's resurrected. He's ascending into heaven. The author of Hebrews says he's walking right into the heavenly tabernacle and restoring relationship. And what does he tell his disciples? Wait here in Jerusalem. Till Pentecost. Side note, total time between the resurrection, I mean, more than 40 days here, okay? 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. And they're to wait and they're to pray until, okay? We are so swift to just jump out and do. Just sometime. Sometime just thumb through your Bible and count the times it talks about us waiting on the Lord. That means a whole lot more than not doing anything, but it definitely means waiting. And we're just not very good at it. But it's essential. It's part of it. What's going on here that's helping the priests? I don't know exactly. I just know that we'll never understand because we're too darn impatient. We have to learn to wait. We have to, I loved how Nick put it this morning. He was talking about the um, Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. And what he said is that what that means and it's essential is that doing nothing always has to be an option. Just be honest with yourself. Is that ever an option in your life? When things are going sideways, when you feel like for the first time you know what God is doing with your life, when an opportunity opens in front of you, how often do you just stop and go, first, nothing. First, wait. First, wait on the Lord. First, pray. First, take a breath. Seven days. Now, there's another reason why it's probably seven days here. We already saw that the tabernacle was assembled in seven days, and now the priesthood is ordained in seven days. What did the tabernacles assembling point us back to? Creation, right? As God created the earth in seven days, the tabernacle is now assembled, and it's kind of like earth with the Garden of Eden. So we've got the Holy of Holies taking the place of the garden, and we've got God dwelling with men once again. In the same way, the priesthood here goes through seven days, okay? It's setting us up for the same pattern here. So, Verse 33, you'll not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. It'll take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I've been commanded, and Aaron and his sons did all those things that the Lord commanded. Now, I just want to sum up one final time this whole process. What does it take to get the tabernacle up and running. First, the whole thing has to be built according to the plan. And then there's an entire practice of worship and sacrifice and how things are and are not to be done. And now there's a priesthood, and the priesthood doesn't just get chosen. They get washed. They get clothed. They get anointed. There's a sacrifice for their sins. There's an ordination sacrifice. There's a burnt offering. Then there's... uh, um, then there's this fellowship offering, and then a seven-day. There's a lot involved here. If the Old Testament books of Leviticus, 
should, or if this book should do anything for us, it should help us to understand the tremendous reality of our own sinfulness and of God's holiness. They go through all these things, why? Lest they die. Now, partially, that's because God's presence is with Israel in a profound way, right? We're, We're going to see that he dwells in the tabernacle in this glory in the same way that he traveled at a distance from them in a pillar of fire and smoke. He's right there, he's present, and so that's serious because it's so significant, but it's also serious symbolically. This is just a giant object lesson for hundreds of years of Israel's history to teach them the lesson that God is so much more perfect than they can understand and that their sin issue, the problem that God wants to save them from, goes so much more deeper than they realize. And I'll just, I'll just state frankly, we need the same thing today. We need a better understanding of these things. And it's true, Jesus his sacrifice has cleansed us and broken down the barrier and brought us near and all those things. So in some ways, it's totally different. But it doesn't change the reality of the awfulness of sin. And instead of just looking at all of the animals dying in the Old Testament and all of the holy and, uh, or the clean and unclean laws and these types of things, instead, we just look at the crucifixion of Jesus And we recognize that our sin, each and every element of it, is so serious, Jesus had to die for it. But, like the sacrifices that God provides here, God loves us so much that he was willing to die for it is also true. But we have to hold those things together, both the holiness and the love of God. So now as we move on to um, chapter 9, I want you to notice that Moses steps into the background He's still there as an instructor, but now there's a priesthood, and so the priesthood is operating. But they're operating for Israel. Think of it this way. Right now, a handful of people from a single family have access to God. But we're not done yet, right? In fact, their only reason to have access to God is to open the floodgates for the rest of Israel so that they can enjoy. And so that's what we see in chapter 9. This is opening day of tabernacle worship after all of this preparation, verse 1 of chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. It's opening day, and they still have to deal with their own sins. They still have to go through this same process. This is a daily thing for them. Consecration is not permanent. But it continues here, verse 3, And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. Okay? And so there's a special, unique reality in this opening day that God is going to appear to the people. If you go back and you read through the second half of the book of Exodus, you'll understand how big of a deal this is. Right? When God revealed himself to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, they were afraid. Right? The, the terror that came with being that close to a holy God was a distance. God's holiness was so great that in their sin, he almost overcame them in a plague because of, the, um, because of their failures. And here, basically, it's a proof of concept. Right? 
God is going to appear in a profound way so that they know that this isn't just, you know, some priesthood from some guy in Moses' imagination who says he hears from the Lord. They're going to know that this is as God planned it and that, if you will, the tabernacle is open for business. Verse 5, and he brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people. Make atonement for them as the Lord had commanded. So Aaron drew near the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Now pause. Go back and read the sin offering. It's not usually a calf. It is for Aaron on opening day. Why? Because it's Aaron. It's Aaron who led Israel in worship and created this golden calf for them to worship idolatrously. Imagine the significance for him. And not just the significance of the seriousness of that action. This is Aaron the heretic who's now Aaron the high priest. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the grace of this scenario as he goes through this process? But it is uniquely a calf here, today of all days, and that's the only comparison that we can draw. Verse 9, the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering to him piece by piece at the head, and he burned them on the altar, and he washed the entrails of the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. All of this should sound familiar. We've seen it three times over. First time, this is what the priest should do. Second time, Moses does it on behalf of the priest. Third time, now Aaron the high priest is doing it on behalf of Israel. Uh, Verse 15. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. He presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule and presented the grain offering and took a handful of it and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of the peace offerings. You see the pattern again? Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering. The whole goal, the whole trajectory is not just my whole self belongs to you, not just I want to, out of free will and generosity, because you've been generous with me, bring you an offering, but I want to enter into fellowship with you. I want to have a feast with you. I want to have a peace offering. Um, So uh, halfway through 18, Aaron's sons handed him the blood and threw it against the sides of the altar, but the fat pieces of the ox of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. Okay, why does he do that? Once again, it's his representation of of mediator. The sacrifice has been received, and so he speaks, he proclaims a blessing over the people. This becomes habit to the priesthood, and we'll learn learn of the Aaronic benediction in the book of Numbers. But here he blesses them, and then notice what's next. He came down from the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Do you see that? So Moses has been in and out of the holy place. He assembled it. 
even when there was this secondary tent of meeting that was not the tabernacle because things were all messed up, he was the one walking in, remember glory on his face. Now it's two of them. Aaron and Moses both go into the holy place. And while they're there, they hear from the Lord. So they went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Okay, and so here, just as promised, God reveals his glory. And all this food that's slowly burning on the altar is suddenly instantly consumed from a fire that comes right out of the holy place and consumes the sacrifice. Okay. So once again, what this means is that the tabernacle is officially open for business, that the sacrifices and the priests work, okay? that God can really dwell with Israel. Now I wish, I wish we could stop right there. I wish we could just say, and they all lived happily ever after. That's not really how the story goes, and it's got ups and downs, but I want you to notice how swift the first down is. In seven days, he creates the heaven and earth, and he creates man and woman and places them in a garden, and then temptation, sin, death. Was that on the eighth day? It doesn't tell us. Noah, get a fresh new world. Tremendous deliverance as God saves him and his family through this massive flood. And he gets there and he worships before the Lord and there's a rainbow and a promise and then there's drunkenness and sexual sin and everything's a mess again and a curse. Right? We've been through this pattern. We've gone through this a few times. And this isn't going to be the last iteration of it. What we're about to read is going to remind you tremendously of Ananias and Sapphira. Side note, that's a New Testament story. right? Day of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to the Lord and they're having the relationship that Israel was always to aspire to, where there's no poor among them, where they're sharing in such a way that everybody's being taken care of in their needs, where they're experiencing the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's incredible. And then Ananias and Sapphira come, and they lie, and they say, hey, we sold our house for all of this money, and this is all of it, and we give it to the Lord, and everybody's like, wow, how generous, but they're lying. They want to be known as givers. They don't want to be givers, and so they're holding some back. And the apostle, by the Holy Spirit, sees through it and says, no way, and they drop dead. It's very similar to this. Joshua gets into the land of Israel. They have this tremendous victory over Jericho. And then what goes on? Somebody in Jericho goes, boy, that's a really nice garment. And I think that's an entire, you know, 20-pound bar of silver. I know we're supposed to not take anything, but I'm going to take it. I'm going to hide it in my tent. And so they go up against this little town of Ai, and they're completely driven back and defeated. And they have to take Achan and his family and stone them to death because of the seriousness of what they've done. There's a pattern here, okay? If anything, the pattern exists to show us that this doesn't take care of the problem, okay? A tabernacle puts God closer to sinful man than he's ever been, but not safely and not permanently and not finally, right? It's not until we get to the very end of the book in Revelation that there's no more but thens, right? It's in that place where there's no longer death, nor sin, nor evil, and this thing is finally put to rest. And so chapter 10, verse 1, 
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or alien or foreign fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, you've got to hear that sentence, which he had not commanded them in the weight of what we've been reading, you may or may not have noticed, as God commanded Moses, as God commanded Israel, okay? It's been said over and over again, and now they come, and it's not that they don't do what God has required, they do something else, right? Something that God has not required. We're not even really sure what it is. When it says here that they offered strange fire is the King James Version, it's hard to resist such a great turn of phrase, Um, but it just means fire from elsewhere, foreign fire. Maybe the censers were only supposed to be fired from the fire on the brazen altar. And somehow, for some reason, they get fire from elsewhere. Maybe there's something way more insidious going on here, and they actually have either pagan intent, or they just have such a pagan background that this is a pagan ritual that they're just trying to incorporate into worship. We're not told. We're just told that this happens, and then verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Do you hear the contrast in that? Day one, sacrifice, and out of the holy place, fire comes out and consumes, and they recognize God is glorious, and they worship. Here they bring, uh, you know, foreign fire, fire comes out and consumes them, and they die. It's almost a reality check, is it not? Can you imagine the profound high of everyone involved on the eighth day when the glory happens and they recognize that this is really going to work? When they start to feel what they'll say later in Deuteronomy, what people has ever had God dwelling as close to them as this people? But there's this instant reminder of the seriousness of these things. If you've known me very long, you know that I always like to talk about the story of the demon core, which was this piece of plutonium that was five cents short of being critical mass. In other words, if it was just a little heavier on its own, it would explode, okay? It would cause a radiation reaction reaction like an atomic bomb. Uh, And the demon core took a couple of lives, but the second instance, it was being held in a lab, and there was a guy who had gotten so used to being around it that he was, actually, um, he was actually coming up along the edge of critical mass. They had another piece, and he'd used this screwdriver as a lever to operate it. And he'd done it more than a dozen times, never in a lab coat, always in jeans and cowboy boots. And he just got so used to it, but one day he slipped. And the room flashed blue, and he felt this wave of heat, and he died. And the people in the room were all rushed to the hospital with radiation poisoning. If anyone should have known the seriousness of what they were doing, it should have been them. But they got familiar. They got used to it. They forgot how dangerous. Somehow that's involved in what's going on here. They just don't get it. Verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. Now that's striking. God says, I'm going to show my glory, and he does so, and it's beautiful, and it's worshipful, and it's received offering. And now he says, look, one way or the other, I'm going to be glorified. My holiness will be made manifest, either by you playing by the rules or breaking them. And it says, and Aaron held his peace. Now, that's profound, is it not? Who are these two priests? These are Aaron's sons. 
In fact, notice what it says in verse 4. Moses called Mishael and Eliphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out to the camp. Aaron can't even touch his sons because he's, he's high priest. He can't be by the dead while he's on, on duty. And so these non-priests, uncle of Aaron's, you know, so his cousins come and they carry them out. As Moses had said, verse 6, And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithmar his sons, Do not let the hair of your head hang loose and do not tear your clothes. Those are both signs of mourning. He says you can't, you can't publicly mourn this death. It's difficult, isn't it? It's hard. But it's because he is not Aaron right now. He is the high priest. He is a representation of God's holiness. If there's any place in the Bible where you have to hear somebody mentally wrestling through saying, thy will be done, it's right here, right? But that's, that's how serious these things are. Lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. It's not just his life that's on the line. He's the high priest. He represents all of Israel. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Okay? So it's not nobody can mourn because these guys did something stupid or even something heretical. It's just because he's the priest. It's just because he's on duty. Israel should bemoan this because it's not a happy thing. It's a sad thing. Verse 7, And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing of the oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Verse 8, the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. Now, that seems kind of abrupt, does it not? Why are we suddenly talking about alcohol? Now, this book is full of instructions, but usually they're with the instructions. This one's just dropped in the middle of this story. It, it's most likely then, whatever Nadab and Abihu did, they did under the influence. Okay? They weren't sober when they made this decision. That makes the most sense of this being plopped in the context here. There's one other thing that might give us a clue to what happens, and that's in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. This is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die. And so it references the death of these sons and another thing that was said specifically, don't go into the holy place. If it's not the day of atonement, if you're not the high priest, stay out of there. So maybe, this is just a postulation, but maybe what happened is because they were a little bit giddy and full of alcohol, they took the fire, they took it to the censer, and then they opened the curtain and looked in the holy place or in the holy of holies. Once again, we don't know why these things are all put together. Maybe it's just making an example out of them. Oh, by the way, while we're on the topic of things that will kill you in the tabernacle, and he adds these other ones to the list. But the significance here is that the priests aren't to operate under the influence. They need to be fully aware of what's going on. It would be just as dangerous as that cowboy I told you with the demon core coming to work loaded, right? It doesn't make any sense. But not only that, notice how he continues. He says... Uh, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Then he says, you are distinct, distinguished between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. 
Now, it may be that the alcohol would impair them to do those things, and that's why it's mentioned here. What I'd like to point out instead is that we see a couple of things that the priests do here that we wouldn't know otherwise. Not only do they offer the sacrifices and maintain the tabernacle, but they also educate the people on clean and unclean. And it says that they teach them. And we'll see this later on as the priests live all over Israel. The reason they're scattered around and not living right next to the tabernacle is because they're the primary instructors of of the word, of the Bible. Their job is to teach the people. And so so putting this all together, I'm just going to generally say ministry is something you shouldn't do drunk. And I don't know if that seems obvious or self-evident. The Bible's not against drinking in general. It is definitely against drunkenness. It says that all of us should be under the control. You know, I I love how Chesterton says it because he was big on drinking. He says you should always be sober enough to enjoy the reality of wine. That's a good balance of the two things, okay? And so it's not total abstinence forever, but drunkenness is not an option. In fact, Paul puts it this way, and this kind of sums up the whole thing. He says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. It's not that you shouldn't be under the influence. It's just you should be under the influence of the Spirit God has given you and not the spirits that you can pick up at the bar down the street, okay? And so there's a significance here. Verse 12, Moses spoke to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithmar and his surviving sons and said, take the grain offering that's left of the Lord's food offering and eat the unleavened beside the altar for it's most holy. In other words, he says, get back to work. Verse 13, you shall eat it in a holy place because it's your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offering, so I'm commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that's contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they're given as a due for your sons and for the sacrifice of the peace offering of the people of Israel. Side note, did you notice the reference to daughters? Okay, let's read that again. Verse 14, but the breast that is waved and the thigh that's contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, and your sons and your daughters with you. Okay, so the daughters of the Levites are allowed into the clean place, the, the holy cafeteria, if you will, as well, to eat of these things. It's just worth pointing out. Uh, verse 15, the thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. It shall be yours and your sons with you as do forever as the Lord has commanded. Now, Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering and behold, it was burned up. Now, why is that shocking? Because the priests were supposed to eat part of it, remember? But here, the whole thing was consumed on the altar. That's why the exclamation mark is there. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithmar, the surviving sons of Aaron. Now, why is he angry? Because they just saw what happens when things don't go according to the rules, right? And, as I told you, what is the significance of eating of this sacrifice? It shows that the sacrifices are accepted. And so he hears this, he's upset about it, and verse 17, why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it's a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation. There, once again, is that principle of why they eat it, that they may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly have ought to eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. He says, hey, look, I know some of the sacrifices you don't eat, but those are the ones you take the blood inside. All he's doing is clarifying the rules here. 
but he's doing it frustrated. He's angry. Notice how Aaron responds, verse 19. Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten of the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. So here's what he says. He says, this morning we offered an offering, a sin offering on behalf of my family's sins. And then my sons offered strange fire and their lives were taken before the Lord. It didn't seem appropriate for me to eat from that altar. And Moses goes, that's a good point. And why does it include this story? First off, Aaron is growing. It's impressive the way he behaves here. But more importantly, consider this. Up to this point, Aaron has been operating under the command and supervision of Moses. Aaron makes a right call as high priest in this situation. Right? He has stepped fully into the office. And it's put here as an aside for the people of Israel to know that Aaron is your high priest and it's good. Okay, now it's terrible that it had to be a lesson learned in this way. But now there is a functioning priesthood. And where does the book go from here? Where will we pick up next week? Now we'll start to get into these um, explanations of what is clean and unclean, what is holy and what is profane, and how to live, not just as people who can come in the tabernacle, but live as people who have a tabernacle. What does it look like to be the people of Israel for whom God has made his dwelling place in their midst? Okay. And so we've got sacrifices, we've got a tabernacle, we've got a priesthood, and now we have a lifestyle that coincides and interacts with that. Let's go ahead and close there for the night. Let me pray. Father, I think sometimes the reason we don't want to take sin seriously is because we want to think of you as a loving God. But those are not mutually exclusive ideas. And the truth is, the greater we realize the weight and the problem of our sin, the more profound your love is in dealing with it so fully and completely. And so as we continue through the book of Leviticus, let our gratitude be more than, God, thank you that I don't have to go through all the rigmarole. Let it also be, God, this is a perfect painting a great plum um, of the measure of our sin. And it makes us rejoice in what you've done in Jesus Christ and the fact that our conscience has been sprinkled and is now clean because of the ministry and the sacrifice of Jesus. We pray that you would bless us this evening because of that sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.